We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. So several weeks ago, I was taking a road trip to a far distant land called Mesa, Arizona. And I hopped in my truck. And some of you guys know, like, I've had problems with my fuel gauge, right, with this truck that I bought. Uh, And so it runs out of gas when it says it's got, like, half a tank. And so I've learned my lesson, and I've learned how to just reset the trip odometer every time I refill it. And I know when I'm getting to, like, 225, 250 miles, I need to go refill this tank up, right? So it hasn't been a problem since. Well, a few weeks ago, I got cocky, and I thought I could go a little further. And I was driving out to Mesa, And again, in almost the same spot as the first time this happened to me, on the side of the freeway, I ran out of gas. Well, I was like 20 minutes early to my meeting, and I was a mile from a gas station, from a Circle K, and I was able to pull off safely onto the side of the freeway. And I thought, you know what? I got a gas can in the back of my truck. I'm just going to take a little hike. I'll go fill it. No problem. Truth be told, it was because I didn't want to call those guys and tell them I ran out of gas again and have them come pick me up because it was embarrassing. So I was like, I'll just, I got the time. It's a nice day out. It was like unusually cool out that day. So I got out. I went to go look for my gas can and I realized it's not in my truck. I had used it to fill up our lawnmower the other day. And so I didn't have my gas can. I was like, that's no big deal. They're going to have a gas can there at the Circle K. So I lock up my truck and I start going for a walk. And then out of nowhere, it starts pouring down rain on me. I'm in like shorts and flip-flops, and it's just pouring on me out of nowhere. So I'm like, okay, this is fun, you know. I'm from Phoenix. I'm a native. Anytime there's water from the sky, it's a glorious miracle anyway. So I'm loving it. I'm having the time of my life. I'm walking. And then I realize that the, the road, that little bypass road or whatever it's called, the frontage road, was blocked by a great big chain link fence. And I had to hop that fence if I was going to make it to the gas station. Still, there's a little bit of excitement with me going on because I'm like, man, it's like I'm a kid again. I get to hop a fence. Like, haven't done that in a while. It's cool. Let's see if I can still do it, right? So in my soaking wet, slippery flip-flops, I'm climbing this chain link fence and I get to the top with ease, I'll add. And I put my hand on the top and I push down on it to lift myself up and then a piece of metal sinks into the palm of my hand. And I was like, that didn't feel comfortable, but I got to keep going. So I hop over, I get down on the other side of the fence, and I look at my hand, and there's this hole in my palm, but no blood. It stings really bad, so I start moving my fingers around to make sure I still have full movement, right? It's not going numb, and it's fine, but the second I start moving my hand, the blood just starts pouring. So I make it into the Circle K, and I walk in soaking wet, muddy flip-flops, holding a pool of my own blood, But at Circle K, they get this stuff all the time, right? So I'm just another dude in there. I go in, I go to the bathroom, I wash up really quick, I get some paper towels, and I press them firmly onto my hand. I walk out, I go find a gas can, I'm looking for Band-Aids, no Band-Aids. So I look over at the clerk, and I'm like, hey, dude, do you got any bandages? And he goes, he just turns away from me. He won't even look at me, won't talk to me. I'm like, okay, let me buy this, man. So I buy the gas can, I go out, still clutching paper towels to my hand, they're like red now. I fill up the gas can, I start walking back, and then it dawns on me, I got to hop this fence again. This time, holding a full gas can in one hand and a soaking, 
red, bloody paper towel in the other one. Hands still throbbing. The excitement was gone, you guys. I was not looking forward to it this time. I got there, and I was like, I remember this fence. I remember what it did to me. I'm still bleeding from what happened here last time. I got cut here last time, and I don't want to do this again. But I had to. I had to if I was going to make it back over. Spoiler alert, I made it over to the other side safely. Uh, No bloodstains on my clothes, and I was able to get to my meeting and get a Band-Aid. So I ended up being okay. Don't worry. But sometimes I, I think life is kind of like that, where we, we get to something and we have this, like, this kind of visceral reaction to it, right? Or this memory that pops up and goes, I got cut here last time. I'm not doing this again. And I want us to think about that as we read Acts 16, because this is a story of Paul going out on his second missionary trip. And I want to remind us real quick what happened the last time he went out. If you remember in Acts 14, when they went out, there are all these Greek people who started like bowing down and worshiping him and Barnabas, thinking they were Hermes and Zeus. But the Jewish leaders came out and stirred up the crowd against them, and they stoned Paul till he was nearly dead. In fact, they thought he was dead, and they drug his body out of the city. You thought what? Yeah, the Greek people did believe that they were one of the gods, but the Jewish leaders knew. They knew they were just men, and they were scared. The Jewish leaders were stoning him. Yeah, his very own people, because he was a Jewish leader. He was a Pharisee, one of the religious leaders. His very own people. I remember what happened last time I went out to share the good news, right? But in that story, we remember he gets up, miraculously, by God's grace, and he walks back into the city, right? And then Acts chapter 15 is the story of he and Barnabas going to the council in Jerusalem and trying to argue for why the people where they went to go preach to, when this happened to him, should continue to hear the good news and be accepted in and be saved. And then he's going to go out again. Now, this is not because Paul's amazing, right? Paul's not the hero of this story, remember. We say that often here, uh, that there's no person in this story who's the hero except for Jesus, right? But God. Paul is able to do this because of his encounter with Jesus. And we're going to hear in this story all kinds of other characters introduced to us. And that's how we're going to pause as we go through this chapter. We're going to pause as we get introduced to a new character. But we're going to see in each one of these characters that they too are faced with some kind of sacrifice in order to live in this reality, this reality of what it truly means to be human in a broken world. But what it really means to have hope for the kingdom of God coming and restoring all things, that it does come with the cost at the beginning. And I want us to hear this sober-mindedly because I think a lot of times what the story we've been fed, maybe many of us, is, hey, if you come to Jesus, I know this life's hard, I know you're going to get cut, but come to Jesus and things will be great, right? Everything's going to get better. And we know that's just not true. We're still in a broken world. One day Jesus will return and he will restore all things, yes and amen. But in the meantime, in fact, Jesus even promises life will probably get harder when you follow him. And Paul experienced that. Peter writes about this in 1 Peter 4, verse 12. He says, 
Don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, when trials come upon you as if something strange were happening. Like, we should expect that. And all the more so when you're following Jesus. But here's the promise, and here's what Paul knew, and here's what the people that we're going to hear about in Acts 16 came to see, is that the presence of Jesus, the very power of God's Spirit, is with you through it and will see you through it to the end. So let's read. Acts chapter 16. Paul went on to Derbe and Lystra, where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was a Greek. The brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled through the towns, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem for the people to observe. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. I'm going to pause there. Patrick, you can leave just the scripture up there the whole time because we're going to keep going back and forth. But let me pause there for a second. We got introduced to the first new character in Acts chapter 16, a young man named Timothy. Now, the rest of the New Testament, uh, we'll, we'll start to illuminate a little more about Timothy. In fact, there's a letter that Paul writes, a couple letters to Timothy as a new disciple growing in the faith. Uh, but we just got introduced to him right here. And Timothy is a young man who's thought well of in his community, be, in his community but his mom is a Jewish woman. His dad is a Greek man. So he's what Harry Potter would call a muggle, right? He's a half-breed. Now, if you remember, uh, the Jewish people had a lot of problems with Samaritans who were also half-breeds in a sense. Like they were, it was a race of people who came from their own ancestry, right? But they, they had this history with them because of the people that they intermingled with who had oppressed them and their ancestors in the past. Well, guess what? Right now, they're being oppressed by Greek people and the Romans, and so you got a woman who's married to a Greek man and Timothy, their child. It's an interesting like, twist right there, right? This story has moved from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. That's, that's the whole motion of Acts that Jesus says at the beginning, Acts chapter one. And we saw Peter and his friends going out and sharing with Jewish believers. And then the story takes a turn and starts opening up to the Gentiles, to the other Nations, And now you're seeing it's this like microcosm, this picture of what we're supposed to experience right here in Timothy is that there is no Jew or Greek, but we become one in Christ. So you get this little microcosm there. But listen, the Jewish people, remember every time that they would go on a, on a missionary journey, where would they go first? They would go speak in the synagogue, right? They would speak to the Jewish leaders first. So you got a guy who's half Greek and who's not circumcised coming into that setting. It would have been a distraction. That's what we got to remember here because this, this could be really jarring. We just read in chapter 15 last week this whole argument that you do not need to be circumcised to be saved. Paul meets Timothy and goes, hey, I want you to come with us on our journey, but let's get you circumcised first. And then it tells us right after that, what do they do? As they travel through the towns, they delivered, verse 4, the decisions reached by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. 
They're literally going out to tell people you don't have to be circumcised to be saved, but let me get you circumcised first before you do it. Right? It sounds confusing. But remember, the goal here is that people would hear the message of Jesus and Timothy and Paul, they don't want any distractions getting in the way of that. So Timothy did not have to do this. This was not forced on him. But it was an invitation to say, are you willing to lay this down to make a sacrifice? And that's a sacrifice. To make a sacrifice for the sake of other people hearing this message clearly. So it's not muddied and clouded by other things getting in the way. You, you have your right, Timothy, to not do this. You have your freedom to not do this. But are you willing to make that sacrifice for the sake of others hearing the good news of Jesus? And Timothy does it. That's just crazy to think about, especially in our world today where many of us are thinking about our freedoms, our choices, our rights. Right? This is my life. Yes, but are we willing to lay some of those down at times for the sake of others, knowing, seeing, hearing the good news of Jesus, the true king over all of it? Because really, we have no rights when it comes to that. We are actually, we are subjects to the king, Jesus. Thank God he's a good king, right? Thank God that there is life and joy and freedom found when we actually submit to him. And this must have been what Timothy believed. He had to have in order to make this decision. There was a sacrifice in order to step into this. Let's keep reading. Verse six. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. That's interesting right there. Like you would think, Hey, they're going out to do a good thing. Like this is God's work, right? We don't know why. It doesn't tell us anymore there. But for some reason, God had a plan and he was going to make sure he kept them on that track. Verse seven, when they came to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So it's the second time. He obviously has something very specific, a goal he wants for them. Like how often are we fighting against God's plan, God's work and God's direction in our life? because we think we see clearly where we need to go. Fortunately, the Spirit was able to bring some humility to them to say, no, 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 this is where God wants you, right? And so we see that happen in verse eight. Passing by Mishra, they went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. That's where we get introduced to another character. Not necessarily this man in the dream from Macedonia, because actually I don't know if we hear any more about him there. Scholars have debated like who he might be later in the story. Uh, but he just Paul gets this dream. God's telling him basically, this is where I want you to go. And they go. But did you catch something that happened there narratively? A lot of this story has been told from a third-person perspective, hasn't it? And then they did this, and he went here. And suddenly it flips right there. In verse 10, after he had seen the vision, Paul, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia. This is where the author of this story, Luke, 
comes and actually joins them. So most scholars believe right there in Troas, where he had that dream to go to Macedonia, is where they met a man named Luke. Now, we don't get told a lot. Luke doesn't write a lot about himself here. But in other New Testament letters that Paul writes, he does tell us a little bit about Luke. And we find out in Colossians 4, for example, that he was a physician. He's a doctor. That he was well-respected and loved by people. Uh, we can tell, scholars can tell by looking at the way he writes in the Greek, that it wasn't the common Greek language, uh, the way most common uneducated folk would speak it, but he wrote it in a very elegant, high language format. In fact, he even at times switches over to a style of writing that the Jewish Hebrew people would have been more familiar with. So he's a very educated person. He's very smart. Uh, he's a physician. His, his Gospel of Luke, the first part of this two-book series, was highlighting a lot of Jesus' healings. Jesus as the great physician, uh, because that was kind of Luke's perspective, right? As a healer himself, as a physician himself. So he's a well-loved, well-respected, highly educated, wealthy person who meets these guys and decides, I'm going to leave all of that. I'm going to leave this community that loves me. And no doubt he heard the stories of what happened on their last trip, right? I'm going to leave this community of people who love me and respect me and where I have a comfortable life in order to go out with you on this mission where it's going to be dangerous. So you got Timothy, who is half Greek, half Jew. You got Luke now, who is a full Greek man. He is not a Jewish ancestry. He's not from that line. And yet he writes, Luke and Acts, it's over 25% of the New Testament. You see how God is bringing in the nations here, right? It's not just for the Jewish believers anymore. But he had to make a sacrifice to do that, to join their journey. Let's keep reading. Our third character is about to come. Verse 11, from Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight from Samothrace. I, that's a total guess on that one. The next day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of the district of Macedonia. We stayed in that city for several days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. A God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So Lydia is a woman from Macedonia, again, not of Jewish descent, and she's a dealer in purple linens. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, right? We can get purple pretty easily in our day and age. But in that day, it was a lot harder to find purple cloth anywhere. In fact, there are two ways you could do it. One was from these bugs and the other from crustaceans at the shore. And you would have to crush them up to get very, very little trace amounts of purple dye coming from it. So it was a tedious, laborious, long process, and it cost a lot of money. So if she's dealing these purple linens, she's going to like these high bidders to these high clientele, and she's making a lot of money from it. Lydia was no doubt a very wealthy woman in her community. She's got a pretty good life. And she hears these strange men, foreigners, coming from another town and start talking about 
this guy who's God yet came as a man and died and then rose again. And the Lord opened her heart to believe. Now let's think about what this would have cost Lydia. She ends up bankrolling the start of the church here in Philippi. She welcomes them into her home. She feeds them. She takes care of them. She gives them a place to stay. All of this money, this thing that she's built her life on, what was possibly her identity before they met, she is willing to spend that expense for the sake of furthering the church, this group of people who are following after Jesus. And she's never seen him personally herself. She's not one of the people that Jesus reappeared to after his resurrection so that she could see and know herself. Paul had that opportunity. He saw physically with his own eyes, Jesus appeared to him. He heard his voice. Lydia had not. And yet she's willing to trade her identity, her standing, her place as a wealthy woman. She's willing to spend that. She's willing to say, I, I, maybe I got this just for the sake of giving it so that more people would know about this Jesus. You see, there is a cost. This theme keeps recurring over and over and over again. In fact, we're called in scripture to count the cost when it comes to following Jesus. There was a man that Jesus encountered one time who was a rich, well-off man, much like Lydia. And he comes to Jesus and he's a Jewish man though. So he's in much higher standing in their people. And he says, Jesus, I've followed all the rules. I've done all the things. I've obeyed every commandment. What else do I need to do to be saved? to enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus, rightly seeing what this man's identity is wrapped up in, he says, sell everything you have and come follow me. He didn't ask everybody to do this, but he knew that this was the sticking point for this man. Are you willing to lay that down to make that sacrifice to find higher treasure, to find a better identity, to enter into the kingdom where all the glorious inheritance of Jesus would be shared with you. And that man went away sad because he couldn't do it. Lydia, she makes that trade. What's the thing that we're asked to sacrifice to lay down so that we could find a better identity and higher treasures in the presence of Jesus himself? We'll see more about Lydia in a moment too, but... Before then, we're introduced to another character. Verse 16, once as we were on our way to a prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. I don't know how to explain this, okay, you guys? Somehow, there's, there's, we know there's other spiritual forces at work, right? We know that there are spiritual forces in the world. And somehow, one of these spirits who was kind of like possessing this slave girl was opening up for her to be able to see things that you and I don't typically see where she was able to at least convince other people, if not actually do it, that she could tell the future for them, right? She's like a psychic. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune telling. Hear that. She's not making a profit for herself. So she's oppressed by some spiritual force. And that's not her only slave master. Then she's also got these humans that everything she does and makes money doing goes right to them. That's her situation. 
She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. Verse 17, as she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. She did this for many days. Paul was greatly annoyed. Pause. She's She's telling the truth, right? These men are proclaiming the way of salvation. They're servants of the Most High God. This is a good thing. This is a true thing. You would kind of want this hype man following around, you would think, right? This is a reminder to us here that a lot of times the how you say something is just as important as the what you say. This spirit that's possessing her, that's controlling her, knows for a fact that this is true. Like the demons know Jesus, but they shudder at his name, right? The spirit knows this is true has no problem saying it's true, but is doing it in a way where it is scaring people off, falling around and yelling loudly over and over and over again. And don't you like sometimes have experiences like that with people and they're like, what, I'm just telling the truth. Yeah, but you're kind of being a jerk about it, right? The how we live our lives under the truth is just as important as the truth we're proclaiming. That's a little side sermon. We'll we'll do that another day. Paul was greatly annoyed. So turning to the spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. Now listen to this, verse 19. Here comes the cost. For this girl to be freed, to find life, to no longer be oppressed by human or spiritual forces. The freedom that she now experiences, here comes the cost, when her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. So the crowd joined in the attack against them and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. They're chained up now, locked up. Here's the thing. They had no problem with what these guys were saying about Jesus and the kingdom and the most high God until their way of life was threatened, until their money was lost. So they go and they tell the courts, oh oh yeah, they're threatening our, our Roman rule here, right? But that wasn't really the thing that got them. What got them is you just took away my money. You just stripped away my comfort. My, my money train is gone now, right? You, you took my cash cow. Instead of rejoicing that this girl was freed from demonic oppression, instead of rejoicing that she could actually think clearly now, She was experiencing freedom for the first time maybe in her life. What these people saw was you are making my life less comfortable. And sometimes the cost, you guys, for us and a very prominent, comfortable nation that we live in, which I'm thankful for, sometimes the cost, though, is that for other people to find freedom, to find life, to find joy, to find hope, to find salvation— it means it'll come at our expense. And are we going to fight against that and get angry because we're losing our comfort? Or 
Are we going to rejoice? Are we going to rejoice in that exchange that I will make this sacrifice for the sake of another? One more story in Acts 16. Let's find out what happens in prison. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. He was probably going to die anyway. If he failed at his job and the magistrates came and they saw that, he would have been killed. This is why he's doing this. But Paul called out in a loud voice, verse 28, don't harm yourself because we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and all his family were baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. When daylight came, the chief magistrate sent the police to say, release those men. The jailer reported these words to Paul. The magistrates have sent orders for you to be released, so come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they beat us in public without a trial, although we are Roman citizens and threw us in jail. And now they're going to send us away secretly? Certainly not. On the contrary, let them come themselves and escort us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to appease them, and escorting them from prison, they urged them to leave town. After leaving the jail, they came back to Lydia's house, where they saw and encouraged the brothers and sisters, and then departed. So as Roman citizens, they had rights. They could not be thrown into jail for what they were saying, at least not without a fair trial. And yet they were beaten, thrown into prison. And you would think, like if you could get out of this, and Paul obviously knows he could by saying, hey, we're Roman citizens. You would think the time to say that is right before they're going to beat you, right? Hey, wait, wait, hold up. I'm a Roman citizen. I, I get a fair trial. You can't do this to me. Like that's when I would have coughed that one up, right? Instead, they hold on to that bit of info. They they swallow that. They allow themselves to get beaten. They allow themselves to get thrown into prison. When they're in prison, the power of God shows up. An earthquake happens and the doors fling open and the chains fall off. That's not a normal earthquake, you guys. They're set free and they willingly stay in the prison where they didn't belong really by right because they had done nothing wrong and were Roman citizens. But they willingly stay. Who are they emulating right now? Who is this reminding you of? Who had done nothing wrong and willingly went to a legal punishment anyway. They're sitting in that prison waiting. Why? For the sake of that jailer. He's about to take his own life and they go, wait, don't do it. They, they wanted to share good news with him. 
They took the beating. They took the imprisonment. Whatever else may happen after that so that this man could hear about Jesus. And not only this man, but now his whole household gets saved. They are wrapped in now into the identity of Jesus. They become baptized too. And then when they're set free, that's when they say, by the way, we're Roman citizens. They could have just gone. But for the sake of more people hearing this story, hey, bring them here to escort us out themselves. I want to talk with them now. Do you see what they're willing to lay down and sacrifice? Now listen, I know sometimes we get to that fence and we go, I've been cut here before and I don't want to do this again. This hurts. Why were Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke and Lydia and all these people willing to make sacrifice after sacrifice to lay down their comforts for the sake of others? Not because they're just really good at loving others, but because they had seen and experienced that Jesus had already done just that for them. Jesus had laid down everything, his whole life. The creator of life himself hanging on a torturous murder device, willingly going to that death and willingly going to that grave so that for the sake of you and I hearing the good news. And in that power and in that love and in that grace and in that goodness and in that hope that the same Jesus is coming back one day to make all things right, these regular, ordinary men and women were willing to go out and make a sacrifice too and say, for the sake of others, would you come and hear this good news about Jesus? Do not grow weary of doing good, brothers and sisters. Life's hard. It's even harder sometimes when we're following Jesus. But the promise, just as Jesus said before he ascended, to his disciples, I am with you always to the very end. The promise is true. Jesus is present with us in it. It's his power that allows us to continue. It's his power that lets us climb that fence again or that lets us make a sacrifice for the sake of our neighbor, our coworker, our loved ones, hearing the good news of Jesus. He will sustain you through it. And not only that, he will come and minister to you and bring you healing through it. And one day he will return and make it all right again. That's the hope we have. And so we're gonna to go to the table and we're gonna remember the ultimate sacrifice that was made for the sake of others, for the sake of the world that Jesus laid down his life for you and I. When we go to the table, we take the bread, we remember his body broken. We dip it in the cup, we remember his blood spilled so that so that God would be glorified in you and I turning back to him and being restored. And so we take that, we remember that truth, and then we rejoice by singing and remembering that Jesus did not stay dead. He rose again. And you and I will not stay in our pain or our affliction either, but we will rise to new life with him. In the same way we share in his suffering, we will share in his glory. Amen?